Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's October the 6th, 2023, a Friday. Almost exactly 15 years ago, a book came out. Uh, on October the 14th, 2008, called Suicide Notes by an author, Michael Thomas Ford. It's a novel for young readers, a a coming-of-age story of a a gay coming-of-age story of mental health. It was a huge success. It remains a huge success, 2,500 ratings, almost all five-star on Amazon, an iconic book on on lots of fronts. Uh, Much has, of course, happened since 2008, including social media, COVID, Black Lives Matter, and so on and so forth. And as it happens over those last 15 years, Michael Thomas Ford, who wrote Suicide Notes, is prolific on lots of fronts. He's written all sorts of books for young readers and not so young readers and as it happens he's back with a sequel to suicide notes called every star that falls it's just come out um and i'm thrilled that um, michael is joining us from his home in southeast ohio uh where the internet access is spotty so any apologies for um for uh, bad uh, broadcast quality don't blame me Blame, uh, blame the bro- uh, the satellite company that provides his access. Mike, congratulations on the book. Where have you been these last 15 years? What have you been doing? Thank you, sir. Well, I've been doing a lot of things. Um, I have been writing adult books or books for adults. I've been writing books for middle grade readers. Uh, I've been doing almost everything but writing for young adults. I took a five-year break where I took care of my mother as she passed from Alzheimer's. So uh, just kind of life in general. And for people watching, we've got two kinds of viewers, of course, on Keenon, the audio, view, the audio, they're not viewers, they're listeners and video viewers. Um, there's another star in this. If you're watching, it's uh, Michael's dog, Lily, um, a little chihuahua, is behaving herself at the moment. I'm not sure whether she'll behave if, your husband comes home, so hopefully he won't show up in the next 20 minutes. Uh, Mike, was or is Suicide Notes? Um, I know it's hard to favoritize books. It's like favoritizing children or dogs. But is Suicide Notes, does it stand out? I mean, you're a prolific writer. You've written so many books. It does stand out. Uh, for one thing, it was the first book that an editor asked me to write, uh, my editor at the time, his name is Abigail McCadden. She called me one day and she said, you are the funniest person I know and you're also one of the most wildly depressed people I know. And I want you to write a book about that because no one is writing about that topic for this age group. Would you be interested? And I said, sure. And so we wrote what she termed the funniest book about suicide that had come out. And it was very important to me for that reason, because the central character of that book, Jeff, is essentially me in the way that he responds to things. So on a personal level, it was very important to me 
that book. It has since become even more important because it's the book I get the most letters about from readers saying, thank you for writing about this. I have never read anything where somebody understood what my feelings are or my experiences. And I particularly enjoy getting letters from people who have spent time in psychiatric hospitals, not that I enjoy that they spent time there, but that they say, thank you for capturing this experience in a way that helps other people in my life understand what it was like for me. Mike, you know this better than I do. Uh, There's a raging debate about mental illness, about how to make sense of it, particularly perhaps today as a kind of epidemic. Do we understand it in terms of technological, cultural terms, or simply uh, the way in which we define it these days? Looking back at 2008, how was mental illness treated then in comparison to now, both medically, but also in the broader cultural sense, particularly for younger people? It wasn't talked about. And depression and mental illness, and particularly suicide, were not things you discussed. If, if you experienced any of those things, it was supposed to be shameful and a secret, and you just didn't talk about it. And it's wildly different now. The environment that every star that falls has come out into is so different from the one Suicide Notes came out into. Now people are encouraged to talk about these things. People are sharing their experiences on social media, which, as you mentioned, didn't exist when Suicide Notes came out. So it's entirely different. So the response to the book has been similarly different. It's been immediate and it's been much more open than the letters that I got initially when Suicide Notes came out. They're bookends on certain moments in our culture. And then, of course, you you throw in um, the sexual element, the, the gay element. How, how is that compared to 2008 versus 2023? I'm guessing that there's much more openness and perhaps even in some places, although not everywhere, toleration towards uh, a gay identity, even a, a young adult gay identity. Absolutely. When Suicide Notes came out, there was a lot of resistance to it. Uh, Gay-themed novel, gay novels for that readership were uh, not as popular or as common as they are today. And curiously... I got a lot of blowback from the queer community, which I'm obviously a part of, saying you shouldn't have written a book about a gay kid who tries to commit suicide. You're just perpetuating this bad image of us. Uh, to which I answered, well, when gay kids stop killing themselves, I'll stop writing books about it. And that generally shut people up, uh, but not entirely. But there was also at the time, there were a number of uh, responses from people almost entirely in metropolitan areas saying, we don't understand why any gay kid would be this upset about himself. Like, what's the big deal? And I found that really interesting, that there was this huge gap in understanding of the gay experience, even in 2008. That has changed a lot, as, as you noted um, these things are talked about more, the sexuality is talked about more, but 
it's talked about in a different way. So there are things in suicide notes, particularly one incident that was not really discussed at all when the book came out, but is now heavily discussed in ways we did not do it back then. And what is that? It's the incident where the main character, Jeff, uh, has sex for the first time. And he has sex with another boy in the institution. And it's a situation that takes place when they're in bed together. And at one point he says no, because this is a frightening situation to him. And the other boy continues and they end up having sex. And not many people commented on this when Suicide Notes came out, but over the years, this response has become much, much more intense to uh, Jeff was sexually assaulted. Why didn't you address this in the book? You know, why did this just happen and it's not remarked upon? And so I've had to talk about that a lot in the last couple of years. And I included that character in the new book specifically so I could go back and discuss that situation. And was it in your view, you wrote it, was it a rape? No, it wasn't in my view. And I don't say that lightly or casually. And I don't say that to say that people who think it was sexual assault are wrong. Uh, it is a, I don't want to use the word generational necessarily, but it's definitely a, we viewed things differently when I was that age than we do now. Um, and that's a whole nother topic of conversation we could have for hours and hours. But that was how I viewed it uh, when I wrote it, was this is realistic to my experience. And that's how I saw it. And I've come to rethink it over the years. Uh, but no, at the time, I did not write it thinking Jeff had been assaulted, which is why he doesn't respond that way in the first place. Yeah, I don't think anything has changed over the last 15 years more than the issues that you address in Suicide Notes and then again in Every Star That Falls, assumptions about sex, about what you do and don't agree to, definitions of rape and that sort of thing. You mentioned earlier, uh, Mike, that um, the original idea for Suicide Notes was commissioned by an editor. She called you, said, you're both I don't know if she, I, I'm not sure, I can't remember if you said suicidal, certainly depressive and also very funny. To what extent was Suicide Notes or what extent does it remain autobiographical? Uh, I, it's, it's very autobiographical in terms of what Jeff experiences emotionally. I never attempted suicide. I never spent time in a psychiatric hospital. But it was, it was luck that I didn't experience those things. I was a very suicidal teenager and adult, but I also had a very stubborn streak uh, where I thought I'm not going to go there because I don't want it to win. Um, but I don't like to talk, say it that way because I don't want it to, to sound like, well, people who do attempt suicide are weaker than mm. anybody else. It, it was just my approach. But for many years, I went to bed every night hoping I wouldn't wake up. Where did you grow and, up? <laughs> I grew up in a lot of different places, but the majority of my time was spent in a very small town in uh, central New York State. 
and I was a very lonely kid. Um, I spent most of my time by myself from fifth grade until I went off to college. So, and as far as I knew, I was the only gay person in the world. So was your, your, uh, I don't know how you put it, your, your mental state or was it very much bound up with discovery of your own sexuality or was, was it more complicated than that? Not that that isn't complicated. It was more complicated than that. There was a lot of uh, religious stuff tied into it. There was just a lot of being a wildly creative kid in a school system that didn't have any interest in that. Um, it was growing up in a tiny town that was concerned with farming and hunting and sports when that was not, I didn't see any way out of this. And what about your, your family, Jeff? How, how did that all fit in? Uh, my family was very interesting. My, it, my parents were simultaneously wildly supportive of anything I wanted to do, but also my mother was wildly religious, and uh, that influenced everything, was her devotion to religion, to the point where I went to a Christian Bible college. So even though I escaped this small town I had grown up in, I escaped it by going to an almost equally repressive uh, environment for the next four years. So it was peculiar. You know, on the one hand, they said you can be and do anything you want to be. But there was also this message of um, you are also very strange and we don't understand you. And were you open to them about your sexuality? No, we, in fact, never discussed it, ever. Uh, my parents are both dead now, but uh, it was never once, never once discussed. They knew about my books. They read some of my books, but we never talked about them. We never talked about the content. Well, it's pretty explicit if they read your book. Yeah, so, I mean, they knew, but, and they met, uh, you know, they, they met, my partners. Um, my mother at one point asked if she could adopt my then partner as her son because his mother had passed. But there was never a discussion of what any of this meant. It was all just, oh, this is how it is now. So that, that's sort of a peculiar thing because you're accepted, but at the same time, it, it's never talked about. You don't seem to be the kind of person, though, to keep your mouth shut. You never brought it up yourself? No, I never thought it was any of their business, uh, actually. But they, since they knew and it was unspoken, why wouldn't you discuss it with them? Just because I didn't want to. I never discussed anything personal with my parents of any kind. Uh, and so that just seemed like one more thing to not bring up with them. They were very much people who wanted to talk about how work was going and what the weather was like and what you were doing, um, but nothing personal. Uh, the irony is that when I was in my 20s, my mother 
ran off with her married Baptist minister, who was <laughs> much, much younger than she was. And so my sisters and I used to joke that I had a get out of jail free card now because. <laughs> yeah. Because you must have been uh, somewhat amused by that. Oh. Uh, I, I want to get onto the new book, Every Star That Falls. But before we get there, I'm going to take a break after this. Um, you were 15 years younger back then. You were still an adult. But writing for a younger audience in 2008, was it different than writing for a young audience in 2023 for you? given that you're 15, I'm not going to be rude enough, to, uh, Mike, to ask your, your age, but um, you, <laughs> well, you are 15, like all of us, you're 15 years older than you were in 2008. Yeah, well, I will tell you, I turned 55 on October 1st, and so I was... So you were obviously 40 when you wrote uh, Suicide Notes. Right, I was 40, and so I was already fairly well outside the age range of my my readership. Um, yes, it was very, very different writing this sequel than it was writing the first book. Um, you learn a lot about yourself in 15 years, I think particularly through your 40s and 50s. And I think you come to see yourself in a more compassionate way. And I think you start to understand young people in a different way in your 40s and 50s than you did in your 20s and 30s, for sure. And also, as you said earlier, just the way today's young people think and talk about issues is just completely different than it was. We are talking with Michael Thomas Ford, the author of a new book, Every Star That Fails, a sequel to the iconic Suicide Notes. Uh, Mike, uh, you mentioned earlier that... Um, you were older. What about, I mean, obviously 15 years older in writing this, this new book, Every Star That Falls. Did you have to take into account everything that's changed? It's been a profoundly turbulent period in terms of young people, sexuality, and America in general. Do you feel that the book, in that sense, Every Star That Falls, as a sequel, it needed to be different? It needed to address a different America? Yes, 100%. So one of, the, one of the things that I lucked out with enormously on this is that Suicide Notes takes place entirely within psychiatric hospital. So it's a closed environment. So we could get away with never mentioning what the year was. We could get away with not having uh, social media and cell phones and popular culture. So that was a huge advantage to doing this book because every star that falls begins the day that Suicide Notes ends. So in reality, it's been 15 years, but in book world, it's the same day. So I was very conscious of how is this going to read to people who are reading Suicide Notes for the first time and then pick up every star. So, so it takes place in 2008, every star that falls. No, it actually doesn't. Um, there are references to cell phones they text each other okay so you sort of took advantage i mean given that the original one wasn't time stamped you took advantage of that correct because if you read uh, suicide notes now there's no indication that it's not 20 whatever year this is 2023 there's no indication that it's not 2023 so somebody who has not read it can pick up both books and not feel 
like did I just did I time warp? You know what what happened here? So given all the changes, what did you or what? I don't want to give away the plot. We want everyone to read the book. It's already selling very well. What did you want your reader, your young reader, to address or think about that suicide notes didn't address? A couple of things. I wanted every star that falls to be about what happens when you go back to your old life, but you're not the old person. So Jeff has changed enormously at the end of suicide notes, but he has to go back to the same family, the same friends, the same school and the same community that he started in. So what happens when you do that? It's kind of like when you go off to college your freshman year and you come back for the first time and everyone goes back to their high school for some reason and you walk around and you think, oh, I'm not the person who left here a year ago or whenever it was you left. That I wanted to write about that. I also wanted to write about things that we never talked about in 2018, like polyamorous relationships and the different way that young people relate to one another now uh, that they didn't back then or that we didn't write about and talk about back then. And what about the issue of trans community? That's very divisive, very controversial. We actually did a show on it earlier today. Does that, so to speak, pop up in every star that falls? The idea of being able to change, not only change one's sexuality, but gender? Yes. That does. One of the uh, two two new main characters is sort of gender fluid. Um, we don't go into it a whole lot about what it means uh, because that wasn't the point of this particular book. But yes, gender issues play a big part in the story. Uh, in particular, uh, normalizing the idea that there are just all kinds of different people in the world in different ways of being. I think even in 2008, when I did Suicide Notes, there were stricter definitions, like you were either straight or you were gay. Maybe you were bisexual, but there wasn't this uh, continuum that we see talked about much more openly now. It seems as if the, the trans issue has divided not just the broader community, but also the gay community. Some people see it as simply the next chapter um, of toleration and self-identity and exploration. Others see it as being something different. How, how do you see it? That's a complicated question. Because I'm not trans, I don't really speak to that very often. Um, I think everyone's experience of their themselves is what it is and what they choose to call themselves and how they choose to identify is up to them. I think there are a lot of older uh, queer people like my age group who remember a time when uh, you were an effeminate gay man or you were a butch lesbian and that was it. Like that was your, that was your option. That's what you had to be. And that's not how it is any, anymore. And that's not even how it was then, but we didn't talk about it then. But I think that there's just everybody has to learn uh, to listen to everybody else and say, what is your experience? What do I need to understand about this? What do you want me to know? And I don't know that it's any of ours right 
to say things are this way or that way uh, because it's just so much more complicated than that. So what's your take on writers like J.K. Rowling, another very successful young, uh, young audience writer who's been quite outspoken and extremely controversial? I, you know, I don't, I don't know how old Joanne is. I think she's a little younger than I am. I don't remember. I think it's just complicated. I think it's further complicated when you are a female person talking about these issues because there is this uh, very, very long history of women being told to be quiet and that their opinions and feelings on things don't matter. And so I don't really want to get into what she said because I haven't read all of it, but I feel like she made some statements early on that probably were not entirely voiced well or understood well by the people who heard them. And I think that really complicated things and sent her even more into a corner that she may or may not have occupied at the outset of the yeah, she's still in a corner, rather disgraced by many people. Mike, over the last 15 years, one of the most astonishing things, I think, has been this. Some people see an epidemic of mental illness, particularly amongst teenagers. Many people associate it with the rise of social media, uh, medical professionals, researchers suggest that mental illness fell off a cliff in around 2012. What's your take on the last 15 years when it comes to mental illness, um, and young people. What has happened? Wh wh why have we had this eruption, it seems at least, of, of, of mental illness amongst young people? I don't know that it's increased. I think that our discussion of it has increased and our awareness of it has increased. So it just seems like, it's sort of like people who say, why is everybody queer now? Well, it's because we're talking about it. It's not because we haven't been here, right? So I think uh, when it comes to young people in particular, social media has been our double-edged sword. On the one hand, it has made it so easy for people to connect and to talk to each other and to learn from each other and to discuss these things. On the flip side, the rise of influencer culture has created a situation where young people feel that they have to compete on a daily basis with these people who they see online whose lives are almost assuredly not what you're looking at online. So they see all of these people living fabulous lives and doing these fantastic things and looking fantastic and succeeding, and they feel their failures in comparison. And what they fail to realize is 99.9% .9 of this is smoke and mirrors. These people do not have these lives in real life, and they have problems too. But when you're a young person and you see it, you think that you're not measuring up. Also, social media has made it incredibly easy to bully each other because it's largely anonymous. People forget that the faces or avatars that they see on a screen are human beings. And so they fire off messages to each other or they make offhand comments on a video or a picture that can be incredibly wounding to anybody, but particularly to a young person who is putting themselves out there hoping for reassurance, but what they get is um, you're fat, you're skinny, oh, your hair is 
horrible, you know, things like that. And so it's become at the same time, much easier to talk to people, much easier to find help, much easier to find support, but also the pressure to succeed in this social media world has become so intense that it adds to these feelings. Mike, there are some conservative figures within, in and outside the gay community, people like Andrew Sullivan, who seem to argue that being gay and perhaps even being suicidal now has become fashionable. Mm. Is there any truth in that, do you think? I do. Um, there, this, this is a really complicated conversation. There is a strange kind of glamour that has become attached to depression mm. where it's sort of like the introvert thing, like being an introvert has really become kind of cool. <laughs> there's all, and I am one, so I understand this, there, but there's all those memes about, you know, being the introvert. And I find it really fascinating that it's, created this kind of mythology around it. And the same thing has happened around mental illness to a degree and to being depressed. It's become almost uh, a fashion or it's almost become a lifestyle for some people. Um, so I understand those comments. I do think that downplays the very real dangers that those of us who are depressed and suffer from mental illness, or I don't like to say suffer, who have mental illness experience, but I do think there's a degree of truth to it as well. And what about the homosexual piece of that? The fact that I know from talking to my daughter, she's in her early 20s, it seems almost uh, <laughs> an occasion when some of her classmates would, so to speak, come out and announce that they're gay. It seemed to happen an awful lot. Is there something almost glamorous about declaring one's gay these days? Well, it, it, not even so much that. It's just that it's almost become the norm. Uh, yeah. I, I joke with my friends that I'm shocked when somebody is straight. Like, are you sure? Are you, you are? Oh. And, and I have parents who are like, oh, I just found out my kid is straight. And they're, they're almost, I mean, I'm laughing about it and, 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 I'm not mocking this, but there's almost a uh, sense of, oh, being straight is just so boring and ordinary now. Your, your parents must be turning in the grave. You'd be. <laughs> well, I had a lesbian aunt. My, my father's sister was, was a lesbian. And it was interesting how they, they dealt with that uh, over the years. So it was not unusual. And my mother's, uh, my mother's stepbrother was also gay. So, you know, there's one in every family. Uh, and they always joke, if, if you don't have one, you probably are the one. But yeah, it's it's become... So, so and, and this is something that is confusing for many people. If it's always become the norm and the, the conventional wisdom is, whatever it is, 10 or 15% of people are homosexuals for one reason or another, mostly, I don't know, rooted in biology then how does one make sense of it? Are many of the people who are, so to speak, coming out, are they just making it up? Uh, well, that's a good question. I don't know. I can't answer for them. Well, what's your instinct? I, my instinct is that humans have always been 
neither one nor the other. There's always been this huge spectrum of, of uh, sexual behavior. And I think we're just finally acknowledging that. You know, what people settle into for a relationship uh, does not necessarily reflect anything except for that's what they've that's what they've fallen into right and so this behavior has been going on forever with people engaging in all kinds of variations of sex and romance and i think we're just acknowledging that and so people just choose to say well i'm not 100 this i'm not 100 that i must just be queer and i think that's all it is finally uh mike the other thing that's changed dramatically over the last 15 years, although this is also extremely controversial, is the issue of race, racial identity. Uh, in some ways, I guess everything is the same, rise of Trump. But in other ways, with Black Lives Matter, there's a great deal more. America seems a more diverse or at least recognizing that America is a more diverse country. I mean, even since you wrote the book, we've had a black president. Um, one criticism of your book was it was a bit too white. I guess because it's a sequel, you couldn't just introduce uh, black or brown characters. What do you make of that criticism? Well, as uh, as a writer, you face an interesting situation. It is inappropriate now, well, probably always was, to write primary characters whose racial experience is vastly different from yours. You know, that's just common sense. But you're also at the same time tasked with writing realistic books. And the, mm. reality, the reality is that most people grow up in a fairly diverse world, right? So if my character lives in any kind of metropolitan area, he's going to go to school with people who are not like him. I need to include them in my books. How do I do that in a way that doesn't intrude upon those characters, the lived experience of people who actually are those ethnicities and races? It's very hard. It's, it's hard and it's complicated to do it. Well, final question, Michael, the most important question is, how does Lily feel about all this? Doesn't seem to be too bothered one way or the other, hasn't barked at all. She doesn't. She she points out that she was born the year after Suicide Notes came out, so she had no involvement in that one. But she she basically sat like this during the entire writing of <laughs> of Every Star That Falls, so she had a lot of input. 